May I speak to you in the name of the one who was and is and always shall be. Amen. Amen. This morning's gospel opens with John the Baptist appearing. And there's a lot going on. John's wearing his camel hair clothes, eating locusts, and crying out in the wilderness, prophesying the coming of God into the world, proclaiming that the crowd of people around him should repent, all the while giving baptisms and shouting some pretty intense accusations to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, deeming them to be a brood of vipers. John's not prophesying from the center of political, economic, or religious power contained in Jerusalem. Instead, his announcement of the coming of God in the world happens in this intense and somewhat uncomfortable scene in the wilderness of Judea along the Jordan River, on the margins of society. The Jordan River itself has long been a demarcation of boundary. The Israelites had to cross over it to get from their wanderings in the wilderness to the land God had promised to them. But John's not standing on the promised land. John is on the side of the wilderness of the Jordan River. A group of Pharisees and Sadducees heard John's call from that wilderness side, and they were part of a crowd who came to John for baptism. As priests and scholars, they were of a class that would have existed primarily within the center of Jerusalem's power circles, which means they would have had to cross from the center of the Promised Land, from the place where they were in control, where they held the power, and where they were incredibly privileged. They left all of that at the center to cross over the Jordan River, to go back out into the wilderness in order to find John, who is not only operating on the margins of society, but is embodying everything that is marginal by what he's wearing and eating and saying. He is not dressing in normal, comfortable clothing or eating normal food or saying things that are appeasing for the sake of getting along with societal grace. John the Baptist was saying that God is coming, but John's demand for repentance and his uncompromising accusations of the Pharisees and Sadducees would not have been comforting or comfortable news. I wonder why they went there. I wonder why they responded to John the Baptist's cry in the wilderness when they heard it. 
Last month, I went on a wonderful vacation to a resort in St. Lucia with my mother to celebrate her 70th birthday. On the plane ride back, about two-thirds through our flight, we suddenly heard someone crying. And it was the kind of cry that is pure, raw, emotional pain. The kind of cry that cannot be held in no matter how hard you try. It sounded like a cry in the wilderness. And it was so surreal to be up in the air, jumbled up together with a bunch of strangers, looking around for the source of this wailing. It made me uncomfortable. The noise had disturbed the peace and quiet of the flight. Someone was breaking the rules of societal expectations for how adults should behave on a plane. But I still had to know where it was coming from. I turned around and saw that it was the woman in the seat directly behind me. The couple who were sitting next to her were staring straight ahead, doing their best to ignore the woman crying next to them. This woman was curled up in a fetal position against the window of the plane, unsuccessfully doing her best to cry as quietly as she could. And it looked like she was trying to make herself disappear. As I did a quick assessment of the situation, deciding if and how it would be appropriate for me to do something, I recognized the couple sitting next to this woman. They were guests at the same resort where I had stayed, and they were white. The woman who was crying was black. I thought about the history of racism, particularly within the healthcare system, the fear and dehumanization that perpetuates the willful ignorance of pain being experienced by black and brown people, particularly black women, especially black women expressing strong emotion. I wondered if this couple's reaction would have been different if it was me sitting next to them crying instead of this woman of color. I wondered how much the color of her skin was impacting their decision to ignore her pain. I wondered how much this woman felt like she was crying in a wilderness of her own, surrounded by people who were not doing anything to help her. Well, this made me kind of mad. And whether or not racism had anything to do with why nobody had helped her yet, I was annoyed that the people closest to this woman were completely ignoring her. So I decided that I needed to act outside of what is normal on a plane 
and join the woman in her wilderness place. I turned around in my seat and introduced myself to her and asked her name. As we began slowly talking, she told me that her mother had just died suddenly and she was flying back from the funeral in St. Lucia. She said she spoke to her mother every day. And this would be the first time she would come back to New York and she wouldn't be able to call her mom. I asked if we could say a prayer together for her mother. And she agreed. So we both crossed the boundary of our assigned seats, reaching over the chairs, reaching over the plains, River Jordan, to hold hands together to pray. Throughout all of this, her crying softened into gentle tears. Then I asked her if she could tell me about her mother, and her eyes lit up. She said her mother loved to cook. She would cook for an entire neighborhood in St. Lucia. And then I asked if there was anything that her mother particularly liked to cook. She said no, she would cook anything. She just loved cooking for a whole lot of people. And when she died, even though she was in her 80s, it was a complete shock because she was still so strong and generally in good health. But she died when she was cooking in her kitchen at home, doing the thing that she loved the most. At this point, the man in the seat next to the woman who had been crying the same man who minutes before had been staring with eyes straight ahead like a deer in headlights said, I have my mother's cookbook. I got it after she died and I love it so much. Then the man's wife entered the conversation talking about memories of her mother. Soon the four of us began sharing stories of loved ones and the food they made. The woman who cried had allowed me and this other couple into her wilderness space. Even though she was the one crying, it took a lot of courage for her to do that. She who made everyone around her feel uncomfortable prepared the way for God to enter that space. It began with the woman's cry in the wilderness and expanded with each person who was willing to act outside of what is considered normal to join her there. Responding to the cry, however, required each of us to be willing to be made uncomfortable. And I think do some repenting of our own privilege. The word for repent in Greek is metanoia, 
It means to come alongside yourself. It's a complete shift in orientation, a change in perspective. In this case, I physically had to turn around in my seat. And John says his baptism is one of repentance. And it is intended to shift perspective. This shift is what John offers to the Pharisees and Sadducees who have come from the center of town to the wilderness. They had to shift their perspective from being in the center of privilege to a perspective of one on the outside of that privilege, on the margins. And I wonder if the Pharisees and Sadducees saw the injustice around them in the center of power and went to John in the wilderness because they knew they needed to do something different. This kind of shift is necessary, John says, because the one who is coming, the one for whom we prepare the way, will judge us all as trees bearing good or bad fruit, and he will clear the threshing floor and judge us as wheat for the granary or chaff that will burn with unquenchable fire. So what makes someone a tree that bears good fruit? What makes someone wheat or chaff? The reading from Isaiah and the psalm this morning both give us that answer. Isaiah describes a tree that has received the spirit of the Lord, and with righteousness, Isaiah says, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So to be a tree with good fruit means to act with righteousness. And God's definition of righteousness means to act on the side of the poor, on the side of those who are oppressed. This is much different than how humanity's order of things work. With God's righteousness, the ones who dwell in the center of power, the ones who have the chance to perpetuate violence and death, the wolf, the leopard, the bear, the asp. They choose to live in solidarity with those who are vulnerable to their power, the lamb, the kid, the calf, and the nursing child. The one who John says will come is coming with the righteousness of God, which means there will be a reordering of things on earth, a reordering of the systems of power and oppression. Perhaps it is only from the margins in the wilderness that a God who is on the side of those who are marginalized can begin to come into the world. And so how we treat the people on the margins, how we participate in systems of oppression, matters to God. And John the Baptist says God will judge us for it through Jesus Christ, the one who is coming. This is complicated news for the Pharisees and Sadducees because 
they represented the center of religious power, and they had participated in the oppression of their own people. This is also very complicated news for me. As a straight presenting white woman who grew up with a certain amount of economic privilege, I definitely have perpetuated systems of oppression and have benefited greatly from privilege I was born with and did not earn. So John the Baptist's proclamations of judgment and fire could easily be thrown in my direction. Some days, I am a tree that does not bear any fruit worth eating. Some days, I don't act with very much righteousness at all. And I am straight up chaff, deserving to be thrown into the unquenchable fire. But, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, I still want to and need to hear what John the Baptist has to say in the wilderness, because there are ways that I participate in the oppression of other people. And I need to repent for my part in that, to come alongside myself and change my perspective so that I can be in solidarity with the people who live on the underside of justice, those people with whom God is in solidarity with. However, we are not all fully one thing or another. We are not all either oppressor or oppressed. Just because you have hurt other people or acted unjustly does not mean that you haven't been hurt or had injustice done to you. And both of these parts that exist within us the oppressor and the oppressed, need the love and care of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what John says Jesus comes to offer. Jesus will come with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And the fire that Jesus brings is indeed unquenchable. The fire of Jesus Christ is everlasting, but it is also transformative. The fire of Jesus Christ offers the parts of us that bear bad fruit and chaff to be transformed, to have another chance to get it right, to be bearers of justice and love instead of perpetuating things that hurt ourselves or other people. So when we repent, when we, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, decide to shift our perspective, even if we do it bit by bit, we not only come alongside ourselves, but we come alongside a God who extends righteousness and justice to every living being in creation. We shift our perspective so we can see God better. And we, 
get to be recipients of God's righteousness and justice too. John the Baptist still makes me uncomfortable. The process of coming alongside myself and with God is not easy. But every day, every moment is an opportunity to turn towards God a little bit more so that we can be transformed by the unquenchable fire of God's love that will always be offered to us through Jesus Christ. I have an Advent playlist that was curated by an organist in Philadelphia. So it's, it's pretty good, musicians and Dennis. <laughs> I promise. There's lots of Bach on it. If any of you are interested, I'm happy to share it. But the song that I've been playing over and over again this Advent is Jesus Christ, the Apple Tree. It is a good choice. <laughs> it's a really good choice. So here's my song request from the pulpit for you, Dennis. Not today, but maybe some other day. <laughs> the last verse of the song goes, This fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Jesus is the apple tree. Jesus is the everlasting tree that bears God's good fruit of righteousness and justice and love for each one of us. If we answer the cry in the wilderness and look to the margins of ourselves and in the world around us, turning towards God along the way, we will be fully transformed by Jesus Christ who gives life to our faith when it is dying. He is the one John tells us to prepare the way for. So this season of Advent, we wait with anticipation for the one who takes us up in his arms with the Holy Spirit and with fire to transform our souls in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Amen.